You're invited to join Anna and Sam at our new regional event, the Food and Faith Gathering. A collaboration between the Food and Faith podcast and the Keep and Till. On November 9th, 2019 at McDaniel College in Westminster, Maryland, you'll join congregations, practitioners, dreamers, and advocates as we discuss issues around food, ecology, community, and social justice. Head over to foodandfaithpodcast.org to register. Tickets are $25 each, which include breakfast and lunch. We'll be joined by Heber Brown, Karen Mann, Dave Baldwin, and Sam as speakers, along with a trip to the Keep and Tell Farm for lunch and for worship. And if you want to be a founding member of the Patreon supporters team for the pod by committing to give $5 a month, you can attend the gathering for free. So head over to foodandfaithpodcast.org slash gather to register. That's foodandfaithpodcast.org slash gather. We'll see you on November 9th at McDaniel College at the Food and Faith Gathering. Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden and Sam Chamberlain. Faith Podcast. I got to tell you that we uh, we get an opportunity to run across a lot of really interesting people who pop up for a lot of really interesting uh, reasons. And today's podcast is one of those. Um, we have the pleasure of talking to a Brandon Reuger, um, who is from rural southwestern Minnesota and studied ag education at the University of Minnesota. So he is a gopher. Um, and after graduating, he was a substitute teacher, a youth worker for the Boys and Girls Clubs of the Twin City and has most recently worked in outreach for the University of Minnesota, um, particularly in the area of underrepresented students in agriculturally related academic programs. Furthermore, he's just begun his studies at Union Theological Seminary, which is in New York City, and pursuing a degree in psychology and religion, where he is focusing on eco-psychology. And if that sounds interesting to you, that's good, because it is interesting to us as well. And so we look forward to chatting about that. So, Brandon, thank you so much for reaching out to us and coming on the pod today. So, as you probably know from listening to our pod, uh, we always start off with a question about your geography. What are the places, the foods, the people, the language, the soil, the flora and fauna that have formed you to be who you are? Yeah, I think as I was thinking about this question and listening to other podcasts, one of the first things that I thought of is that it's always important to acknowledge the indigenous people of the different lands that I have come from. Um, and so I think where I grew up in Minnesota um, was uh, the land of the Anishinaabe, Ojibwe, and Dakota Sioux people. And then now where I'm in New York City, as far as I know, um, is the land of the Lenape people. And I, sh- I should say is present tense because we know that those people are still here and uh, they're still influencing the spaces in which we are. So I'll just lead with that first because I think it's important to lead with that. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I come from uh, rural Minnesota. Sleepy Eye, Minnesota is the name of my hometown. Um, And that's certainly been a really huge influential piece in my life and has been quite a contrast from when I went to Minneapolis and now being in New York City, going from a small town to a big city to a really big city. Um, and I think that, I mean, just thinking about 
geography and the land, um, just the spatialness of each of those different places and um, has been shaped in different ways. So another thing that I think of when I think of the geography that shaped me is I think of it in terms of the identities that have shaped me because I think that's what is also important to bring into um, just the context of any conversation and how I've been shaped. And a few of those um, I identify as white. So that's something that's certainly shaped me since birth and before birth and for many generations has shaped me. Um, I'm socialized as a male and um, I identify as queer and able-bodied, Christian, most days, <laughs> many days, and some days, <laughs> and all in between. Um, uh, a U.S. citizen, um, certainly come with a lot of different privileged identities, and then um, some that have shaped me in ways for better or for worse, but those are the ones that I see the world through, and I think that those are the ones in which I walk on the land through, and so it's important for me to share that those are the ones that are where I'm at. And I think for the purpose of this conversation, really the one that I would want to focus on um, or that I, that I think is most prevalent is just the rural to urban to even more urban. Mm -hmm. I just feel like that contrasts as far as like what it means to relate to the earth, what it means to relate to different communities. Like those geographies have really shaped me in so many different ways. So, yeah. So I'm curious, um, tell us a little bit about the Sleepy Eye and like what you, you said it was rural. So what is there? What are the folks doing in Sleepy Eye? I didn't know that was the name of the town. I thought it was like Sleepy Eyed Rural Southwestern Minnesota. So no. more about Sleepy Eye. <laughs> yeah. So it's named after Chief Ishtakahaba. Um, and uh, he was a chief that was appointed by, appointed by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is an important thing to note because it means he wasn't necessarily a tribal chief, but he was appointed by um, an, a governmental agency that was run and operated by white people. But obviously there's still some notion of sovereignty and respect to pay towards that. So I want to name that as well. But um, Chief Ishtakaba's name translated to Sleepy Eye because he had droopy eyelids. So that's the context of Sleepy Eye, Minnesota. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's a very agriculturally dominant community. Um, and that's certainly something, I mean, that has really shaped how I walk through the world as well, I guess. That's probably what I'm referring to when I say the difference and contrast between rural and urban, um, because agriculture exists in all of these different spaces. It's relating to the land exists in all of these different spaces, but it's certainly a different experience wherever we are and whatever identities that we walk through the land on. Um, and I think in rural Minnesota, I was exposed to a lot of pretty dominant narratives in agriculture um and as far as just thinking about like agribusiness and i was a member of ffa um and that's which, why which will you tell our listeners what that stands for oh yeah yeah sorry thank you um future farmers of america or formerly that's that. what it used to stand for yeah <laughs> oh you know the key message <laughs> yeah so um yeah, those were very formative experiences for me and led me to the University of Minnesota to study agriculture education. But then that experience too and of itself led me to an expansion of all of the different perspectives and traditions that are in agriculture and 
perspectives and traditions that I still feel like I'm learning a lot about. What was the religious landscape of Sleepy Eye and of your experience and how did that overlap with the agricultural landscape? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So Brown County, which is the county where Sleepy Eye is in, is a very predominantly Catholic county. I think I read an article one time that I was like 80% Catholic, but don't fact check me on that. Um, And so I grew up within a Catholic family. Uh, And so the county itself is very Catholic and very culturally Catholic. Um, I would say as far as though being in agricultural spaces that it wasn't quite the same. I, I always felt though that it was very faith driven, but from like a kind of dominant when I talk about like dominant narratives in agriculture, I also think of like dominant narratives and faith circles as far as like evangelizing. Um, I feel like that same sort of notion was also present in FFA as well. And even if it wasn't always explicit, it was definitely like a, an undertone. And I was within that space for sure for a long time. And then again, going to the University of Minnesota, having a lot of different experiences exposed me to like, what is faith beyond just this one thing that I've always known, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then for a long time, I like kind of held them separately as I deconstructed the different pieces of those and then started to figure out more recently how those two things go a lot more together. So, so um, our our introduction to you was around this world of FFA mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and some things that have been happening in FFA. So I wonder if you can, for our listeners, um, just describe a little bit about what FFA is about mm-hmm. and then what, how you understood what brought FFA into the news in a really profound way over the last couple of months. <laughs> Great provocative question. <laughs> um, FFA uh, I'll give the, the mission statement. I mean, there's nothing better to give than that, right? That's right. It makes a positive difference in the lives of students by developing their potential for premier leadership, personal growth, and career success through agricultural education. Well, you so, nailed that. <laughs> I know, right? I, got, I mean, I'm in FFA, so I got to nail the key messages and the, know, the, know the things. Um, but basically, FFA is a youth leadership organization, one of the largest in United States, potentially the world, with now over 700,000 members across the country, um, and focuses primarily on agriculture, food, natural resources related careers, um, but um, does it a lot through kind of like a leadership lens, or maybe holding them both in tension. I don't know that a lot of people would say that they're mutually exclusive or that one's more than the other, but they kind of are held together as far as like preparing young people for careers in agriculture, food, natural resources. Um, so the, what you're referring to <laughs> um, is, so a few months ago, um, I wrote a blog about why FFA isn't actually for everybody, was the name of the blog. Um, and essentially it was just um, addressing some of the different issues that I've seen from within FFA. Um, in a lot of the ways that it's been inequitable to certain groups of people. Um, And that was based on my own experiences, as well as listening to other people's experiences. Um, And as far as the reason why the blog itself came about was, um, I mean, I had been in different spaces where I'd shared these things at 
local, state, and national level. I was on an inclusion and diversity task force for national FFA um, and had shared these different things and challenged different things. And then at some point, particularly when you're within a marginalized community, um, you realize that people are not listening to you. Um, and so I was not feeling listened to. <laughs> um, and I was feeling like these other people were not being listened to as well. And so I consulted other people. I said, hey, like, what, is, what are you thinking, feeling, experiencing about this? And then decided to write this blog. And um, What is it you were advocating for? What was that? What, what is it that you were advocating for? So you, you were said that you were yeah. not being heard. I wonder what, what you were speaking into that space. Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the biggest things was that I really wanted to tell the, a truthful story about what FFA is. Um, and I want to also say that this is true about any organization or institution is that we hype ourselves up about um, all of the things that are so hopeful about us. And those, those things are great and we need to do that. But I think we also need to acknowledge where we fall short, where our shortcomings are, be held accountable to them so that we um, address those areas and can continue to move forward um, and be better, essentially. Um, and it, I didn't feel like FFA was doing that. Despite this inclusion and diversity task force, it was still like these messages of like, oh, we have diversity. But like, it's always at the expectation that these marginalized communities are to assimilate into what the dominant norm is. So as a queer person, like, yeah, I might be involved in FFA, but like, how are you decentering like heteronormativity in and gender norms within FFA? Like, great, women are now allowed to wear pants within FFA, but are you going to show pictures of men wearing skirts? Like, is that, are you going to continue to deconstruct that? Are your staff people going to understand that? Are you going to hire staff people? Are you going to give them decision-making power that represent those different identities? So, How I guess, is that message received? Yeah. <laughs> um, it was uh, received very well by a lot of people, I would say, actually. Um, and I, I certainly want to uplift those. And particularly, I would say, for marginalized communities. I had a lot of people of color, queer people, people with disabilities, people from different religions, other than Christianity, I should say, um, messaging me saying, thank you for saying something. Thank you for telling the truth when nobody else is. Um, so that was certainly an encouraging and affirming message. And of course, there are people that don't receive it well. Um, and a lot of times in my personal story, I let those people overshadow the, the good things as I'm sure a lot of people do as well. Mm. Um, and so it, was, it wasn't received super well by those people, but I think what I learned from that process was that um, I'm in the story to see the marginalized. I'm in the story to share those, those voices where they're not being listened to. And I'm gonna stand in solidarity with them. And I'm not going to center how the dominant voices feel in this conversation, which I acknowledge that there are hard feelings and it's like a lot of generational trauma that we're all working through, right? But sure. um, that's not who I'm standing in solidarity with, so. And so what is it, what would be from a, 
from an agricultural youth education standpoint, whether it's FFA, 4-H, um, other organizations doing this kind of work, what are, what are some things that you would say need to change fairly quickly to make sure that we address uh, the, the groups and the, and the self-understandings that you describe in your article? I mean, it wasn't, you know, you, you talked a lot in your blog about, you know, queer people, but also made mention of issues around, you know, um, Hispanic uh, communities coming up and how our food systems are built on the backs of those folks, but that's not being all that well represented in our youth agricultural spaces as well. And so what are some things that, for those of us who work in agricultural spaces, you would encourage us to just have our eyes open to dominant narratives that might need to be deconstructed? Yeah, and I'll start by saying that by critiquing doesn't necessarily mean I have the right answer and I'm still coming into this with my own dominant identities. And so I'm trying to uplift those voices, but I also fall short of them too. And so with that being said, I would say that seeking out those voices is the number one thing that we can all do. And not in a way that's tokenizing, that's like seeking them for this like capitalistic transaction, um, interaction but like truly seeking to say like i i want to see and hear your voice and i want it to be centered in my own in my own work and conversations that i have with others so some people that um i follow on social media have been really helpful for that um and that's both inside and outside of agriculture spaces um amber tamman i think is how you pronounce her name but she's actually in new york city and She's a person of color who talks a lot about, she um, is a farmer and talks a lot about like how she relates to the land in this society and how it's not made for her and how she um, like faces a lot of these barriers, but still holds on to this incredible hope of um, being with the land growing and like saving mother earth in this climate crisis that we have right now. Um, and so, to, the, to that point, I'll say seeking those voices is one of the most important things we can do. Um, and yeah, I feel like that's the number one thing that I can recommend. As well as in the blog, I do share some different action steps about things that we need to discuss. Like, in, and I mean, it's all interconnected, right? Like FFA is not in a, in a silo away from um, agribusiness generally and away from like fossil fuel and energy companies that are funding us, like all of this stuff is interconnected and we need to be able to figure out how do we all do this in a just way, right? And so some of those things are like lined out in the blog, but some of it's just more discussing and I don't, just because I'm critiquing doesn't mean I have the solution. Um, and I don't feel like I need to have the solution at this point, unless they're gonna pay me for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but I will gladly offer some more solutions, <laughs> um, which is honestly an accurate point in of, its, of itself is that marginalized people are, are expected to put in this free labor, right? So I'm curious, a lot of the things that you have lifted up are issues that we see throughout culture and throughout this interconnected system that you, um, I think, so accurately named that they you know racism and homophobia and marginalized communities you know and our indigenous siblings these are all issues that come up in any human organization right mm -hmm. um 
I'm interested not for you to have found all the solutions because I, I agree that that is not the responsibility um, primarily of, of someone who um, identifies as you do and who is not being paid to, to come up with those solutions. But what I am curious about is do you see particularly within this arena of young and potential farmers around organizations and people who are working in this arena, do you see places where this is being done well or where the work is happening? And are there any examples that you could lift up? Yeah, absolutely. So Amber Tamman, again, a great individual who's doing that great hard work and also is always seeking people to support her too. So um, can you that. share a little bit more about um, where people could find her work or what that work? Um, uh, well, her name we is spelled A-M-B-E-R and then last name I think is T-A-M-N. And I think just by Instagram or Googling, you can find her and then find her Patreon page. So, um, and then Another organization that specifically comes to mind in Minnesota, at least, is the Land Stewardship Project, um, which is doing a lot about like more local organizing efforts um, in agricultural communities. And one specific thing that they're doing is that they're taking, as far as I understand it, I hope I'm accurately summarizing this, but they're, when they, they receive gifts of land and they'll return it back to indigenous nations and mm -hmm try and like do some sort of reparations around it um, with indigenous people specifically. And I think they do as well um, with um, other folks, but I'm not sure exactly what their parameters are. Um, but yeah, so they're specific to Minnesota and doing great work around that. And then, I mean, my context is Minnesota. So, but I think that any city is going to be able to find this. Um, I mean, moving here, I've already found uh, an organization called We Act that is doing amazing work around environmental justice um, in historically marginalized communities like Harlem in New York City. Um, so I think wherever people are, they're going to find those things. In rural communities, it can sometimes feel like more of a challenge, mm -hmm. but then that's also where it's really important that we all organize together into making those efforts as well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll build on that shift that you just mentioned of moving from the rural to the urban and then to the ultra urban. Um, what, <laughs> what drew you to the shift to seminary? You came out of this, this ag background and now you've landed mm -hmm. right in the middle of the theological conversation. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about, about your call and what it is that you are finding in this new season yeah absolutely so i've been here for like a little over a month <laughs> um, okay so you don't have to have any like you know big huge statements yet <laughs> maybe tell us what got you there you know <laughs> right, right so just to clarify to everybody you know i can still quit so <laughs> um but i think one thing that really drew me here um is that i mean i mentioned when I was talking about geography that identifies Christian most days and I made that clarification. And I think behind me sharing that thought is that all of us are searching for what it means to belong to something um, and to belong to each other, to belong to community, to belong to ourselves. 
and I think at the root of that is this theological spiritual framework of what does that actually mean why why do we do this do we need to do this like who do we ultimately belong to do we belong to ourselves to God's self within us um and so coming to seminary, I was really interested in exploring that question as a framework for my own life, like whatever career path I did. And one thing that I wrote about before coming here in my admissions essay, as well as when I told people is that I really have no idea what I like ultimately want to do, as I don't think anybody really does, no matter how much they say they do. Um, but I know that my vision is radical love and restoration for this world. And I think that being in seminary itself helps frame what exactly that means, at least in this seminary space, I should share too. Um, and so being here is helping me live within that why that I have of radical love and restoration for the world. That's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. And so speaking of radical love and restoration, I have to ask, because yeah. Union was just in the news, or at least on social media. <laughs> were you at the uh, Were you at the the plant confession service? Yes, I was, and I was sitting like two chairs away from the person that took all the pictures. <laughs> so, so yeah. tell us more about that. Yeah. That? Yeah. So I, I think what you're referring to is um, so every day we have chapel and. Um, once a week, there's a class that puts on a chapel focusing on essentially like the ecological crisis and how we bring that into our liturgy and worship and grieve that space as well as find hope for it. As far as my understanding, I'm not in that class. Um, but this particular chapel we did, um, we had plants and we confessed to plants the ways in which that we as humans have harmed plants. And I think that ultimately is maybe even a larger conversation about how we've harmed the earth and how the plants are a part of that. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's what you're referring to. <laughs> and I, it, yeah, it, I just saw the whole thing blow up on Twitter. I mean, you know how Twitter can be where yeah. yep. it, was, uh, it was the issue du jour for about 36 hours. It, it definitely was. <laughs> Without getting into all the, um, back and forth on Twitter, which I think was actually a really helpful use and interesting conversation. Could we ask, what was that experience like for you actually being there? Maybe rather than not necessarily dissecting the historical and theological mm -hmm. pieces of it, but what was that actual experience like of, did you participate? Did you confess to a plant? Um, mm -hmm. What did that do for you and your own sense of interconnectedness? Yeah, that's a great question, and I appreciate that. Um, one, one person that I would refer to as far as if anybody's looking to learn more about is Dr. Claudio Carvales, who leads that class, and he just put an article out on Sojourners, maybe. Um, so oh, great. if people do want to look into that more, I'll refer to that. Perfect. Um, but as far as the actual experience for me and being in that space, I was really – I. Um, so basically they allowed space for students and faculty and staff and guests to come up to a microphone and to just share the ways in which they wanted to confess to the plants. Um, and I was really struck by one particular student who, who just said, like, I 
confess that I think that this is even ridiculous that we're doing this and that I hold this internalized notion of like what it means to be in harmony with you. And that really struck me as just like, I've been doing a lot of my own work understanding as to like, what is my relationship with the earth and with the land and with each other and how it all connects to each other. Um, And I've definitely come a long ways, but that particular comment was like, wow, there's still so much that I haven't learned about this relationship. Mm. Um, And really struck me. And I, resonated with that and that was my that was my confession too to the plants is that like it seems as if this might be um ridiculous but it was also really beautiful like just the ways in which we were trying to heal that um i would say trauma that we have with the relationship with our earth um and the ways in which we were sharing space together it was absolutely beautiful an amazing experience and then when it blew up on twitter i was like whoa i didn't, <laughs> I didn't know this was a thing <laughs> yeah it was beautiful so speaking around trauma and you know and restoration which i hear you just constantly calling us back to that um yeah you mentioned to us this really interesting idea and i've only very very briefly kind of glanced off the surfaces but talked about um your interest in uh, eco-psychology. Yeah. And I have seen this play out in so many ways that there's a real trauma associated with what's happening to the climate mm-hmm. and, the, and the earth that we are handing off to you know, future generations. And so I wonder if you can yeah. share for our listeners, because we've never discussed this topic, yeah. a little bit about what eco-psychology is mm-hmm. and what your focus in eco-psychology would hope to accomplish in your vocational call, whatever that looks like. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. Um, Yeah, so I am just dabbling into this as well. So as you can tell from this conversation, I am an expert in zero things, (laughs) but I'm interested in a lot. (laughs) And I point to the other voices. So I will do that again. That's what moves people. When we're interested and there's passion around something, yeah, like we don't have to know a lot to get it. So yeah, I've had it. So um, as far as Western thinking goes, because I will share that eco-psychology, I think is probably a field that's existed in indigenous cultures for a very long time without that specific name. Um, But it's a relatively recent term that was, um, I think, coined by Theodore Rozak, or at least he has a a great book called Voice of the Earth about eco-psychology and also has another book I think it's just titled eco-psychology that's an anthology of a bunch of different authors from the field talking about it but it's a pretty new and less developed field I would say Um, but essentially the premise of it is um, actually I so I'll maybe share the questions I asked before I discovered the word and that might be a better framework so when I was coming to seminary and people were asking me what do you want to do and I was sharing it Um, And one of the things I was interested in exploring was I said, uh, um, I'm really interested in these questions around what are the therapeutic interactions that we have with each other as people? What are the therapeutic interactions we have with the earth? And what are the differences and similarities in those? And how are they all interconnected with each other? Mm -hmm. And I think eco-psychology, from my understanding of what I know right now, seeks to answer those questions. Um, one really interesting thing that I've 
learned from just kind of dabbling into it right now and reading um, uh, one of the books in eco-psychology from the two that I mentioned um, is that we essentially like have this like inner child within us that is in harmony with nature. So uh, particularly before the development of modern agriculture, as we know it, um, in indigenous cultures specifically, young people were taught how to be in harmony with the earth, right? And that's where we see a lot of maybe like sacrificial rituals and um, just a lot of respect for the animals and plants that people were eating and hunting and gathering and all of those different things. And so when those young people matured and came of age, they came into the world with this maturity of understanding that we're not extracting from the earth, but we are a part of the earth. We're connected with everything together. And then at the development of agriculture, that idea was kind of lost. And so one, one thing one of the authors talks about, Paul Shepard, is that um, we have all lost this ability to mature. And so we have this like childlike relationship with the earth um, in a harmful childlike relationship, I should say, that's like very extractive of it. And so th this is one of the reasons why we're always looking to youth is because they reflect this um, childlike idea that we see in, that is a part of ourselves, but we don't actually understand is a part of ourselves. Um, so if you think about like Greta Thunberg and her sharing like, I'm a child, like I should not be doing this right here. Why are all of the adults looking at me to do this? I should be in school right now. I feel like that is a prime example of one of the harms of our relationship of the earth and the immaturity that we have, that we don't realize that we have in our psyche. Um, and so we're looking to these young people because we have a hope that they're going to actually mature in a way that we never actually have, but still have the capacity to do so, but haven't. Um, so I hope that makes sense. It's kind of a lot and I'm still wrapping my head around it. Not sure if I'm synthesizing it perfectly, but <laughs> I think it's fascinating questions to ask ourselves. And I mean, our relationships with the earth parallel our relationships with each other and how we connect to each other. Well, and I would bring in a third thread in that is how we connect to our spiritual life, exactly. to God, to our religious traditions exactly. is, is a, is a third thread to weave into that. And yes. I know it's something that Sam and I are both very interested in, and many of our various guests and conversations about how is it when we reconnect to our food and to the earth, what is it like when we do that also in conjunction with reconnecting with each other with God with with a religious tradition and that there are some um, there are many ways that we can clearly point to the interconnection and that in some of the siloing that has been done actually I think that we can see how people and systems are struggling and suffering because mm -hmm. of those disconnects yeah um ecologically we see the suffering, we see it in communities, we see it in, you know, systemic injustice. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, really, I think it's really interesting to explore. And then how does it affect our own mm -hmm. psychological health and well-being? Yeah. 
Absolutely. I appreciate you adding that because that's what I'm really interested in exploring while being here. Um, I have to write a thesis for my program. So I'm hoping to kind of dive into that. What is the theological, spiritual piece that threads through all of this? So I appreciate that. Well, it'll be interesting to have you back on the pod in a few years and, yeah, and, you know, before and after seminary shots. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so what are your, oh, I was, what are some of your intuitions, you know, and, and, and anticipating the journey that you're going to go on? Um, but for communities of faith who want to address tra- climate trauma and, and, and create and enable more healthy relationships between individuals, between individuals in the earth and between individuals in God. Um, mm-hmm. just what, are, what are some things or some questions maybe that communities of faith can be asking to at least, at least wrap their heads around that and begin the thought process about, about what, a, what, a, what a more holistic way of being on the earth might look like? Wow, yeah. Wow, that's a very... <laughs> I mean, that's like a master's level question. <laughs> uh, and I haven't graduated yet, so I'm not master's level. <laughs> um, wow, that's good. I feel like sometimes we get wrapped up in like, I'm not, and I'm not downing this idea, but like we get wrapped up in the idea of, like, okay, we're going to put solar panels on the on the roof, which is fabulous. Like every community yeah. can do that. But that doesn't get to the spiritual and emotional realities that also come with this. Yeah. And so I think what you're advocating for is a really pastoral approach. Like it's really addressing soul, spirit, body, the, the entirety of the human, like asking communities of faith to actually do their work mm-hmm. to actually help build healthier people at the end of the day. Yeah. And actually I will add to that too. One thing that I'm interested in that I maybe haven't spoken to or maybe two pieces of this. So I think a lot of times, like you said, it's like putting a solar panel on the roof is going to be the fix of my relationship with the earth. But also 70% of the top 100, 70% of all carbon emissions come from 100 companies, right? And so our actions are important and contribute, but also how are we addressing that? Because using reusable silverware, whatever is not going to have nearly the same impact as dismantling the system that ha- is like controlling all of the power around the climate crisis. Exactly. Straws are terrible, but my not using a straw is not getting us out of the climate crisis. Yes, exactly. So, both and. <laughs> yes, exactly. Both yeah. and. And being able to hold the dialectical between those two things is so important, I think, for all of us, especially thinking about our relationship with the earth. Um, and I think to hop onto the second thing from that um, is that I'm really interested in, there's a lot of fear, I think, in the climate crisis, specifically in young people right now. And so a lot of people are driven or crippled by fear, which Mm -hmm. is kind of a scary thing, I think. Um, And I don't want to say that hope is also the only thing that we should be looking to. I think it takes that, again, that both and that you referred to, Anna, that dialectical relationship of what does it mean to be scared of what our future could be like, but what does it also mean to be profoundly hopeful of what our future could be like regarding the climate crisis. And when we're profoundly hopeful about it, maybe that's when we'll organize in our communities around making sure people are divesting from these companies that are, you know, investing in fossil fuels and energy. Like what, how do we hold those two together in a way that like 
really actually moves us to action beyond using a reusable straw. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a perfect lead into the way that we to wrap up our conversations with our guests, which is to ask you about what brings you hope. And we really try to frame hope just the way that you did so eloquently of this is not, hope is not something that kind of gets us out of doing or even feeling that there is a time and a place to go to places of feeling the enormity of what is, what we are facing. Um, But hope in a way that keeps us engaged, that keeps us showing up to the work Mm-hmm. that keeps us knowing that we are not alone in it um mm-hmm. that if we if we go to the place of of crisis and and engaging the severity but hope is the thing that takes us through despair to mm-hmm. to continue to to do the work absolutely so what gives you hope yeah and uh, I'll maybe start again by saying that it's a privilege to hope too. <laughs> it is. But some people don't even have the capacity for that. And yeah. I totally recognize and name that particularly for many, maybe any listeners who are in that spot at this particular moment. So, um, and I know I've been there too. So, but as far as like what has brought me through that and in hoping, I think one thing I come back to is that we know what what can change to make this world more just and better um and when i say we i don't necessarily mean that you and i know as an individual but all of society knows we know that there's so many answers in the soil we know that there's answers in indigenous culture we know that marginalized communities have been telling us some of the different solutions to answer some of these really tough questions Um, And I just think that the idea that we know that the answers exist keeps me incredibly hopeful. And the idea that people can change too. I remember when I was first um, coming out, or a little bit after I came out, actually, I had a a friend, came out as queer. Um, I had a friend who uh, was struggling with like where she stood on it. And if she believed that the Bible is in conjunction with a person being able to be queer. And um, we had supper one night and she told me prior to that, that she had to tell me something. And I like knew that she was going to come to her conclusion and share with me how she felt about it. And she just said to me, you know, I I realized that you don't need to hear this and I don't need to tell you this, but I just want to let you know that I affirm who you are and everybody else that it's like, it's not my place. And um, yeah. And it it wasn't like, it's not my place. Like I'm not, not judging you, but I still don't agree with your lifestyle. It was like, I firmly affirm you as 100% fully and wonderfully made. Um, And just the idea that she could go from this place of struggling, which we all are in, we're in all these struggles, but to this place of, understanding and change makes me profoundly hopeful Mm -hmm. um, that we can all be redeemed. We can all be restored to what our glory really is. Mm -hmm. That is a fabulous note to land on Um, moving from trauma and from disconnection to restoration and reconnection and wholeness. Mm -hmm. So, Brandon, thank you so much for coming on and just for sharing with us for a little bit. Um, But we want to make sure that our listeners can connect with you and keep up with you. So what are the best places to do that? 
Yeah, um, I have a very underdeveloped blog website, <laughs> brandonbegger.com. Pretty website. <laughs> and um, will you spell your last name for our listeners? Yeah, great point. R O I G E R. Um, and then you can find me on Twitter um, at Brandon Reiger, R-O-I-G-E-R. And um, at, on Instagram, you can find me at B. Reiger. Those are probably the good, best places to hear my voice. And in those spaces, too, I'll share that I try to uplift the voices of other people as well to make sure that those voices are being centered and heard, even in my own personal community. Excellent. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. And we look forward to talking to you again in the future and hearing how you explore these questions and the work that you are continuing to do. So stick with it. <laughs> Grad school and seminary, it's, it's a ride, but um, what, a, what a blessing it will be to the world for you to continue to explore these questions. So thanks for coming on the pod with us. We'll look forward to having you again in the future. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest University School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, Garden Church, and The Keep and Till. And the music is by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.